1: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
2: Exodus 39, Exodus, please turn to Exodus chapter 39, Exodus 39, 6. We into this passage here, Exodus thirty nine, six, we're tabernacle now, and we're studying about one article, a couple of two articles in the tabernacle as we start in Exodus chapter thirty nine, verse six. And they wrought onyx stones, enclosed in ouches of gold, graven as the signets are graven, with the names of the children of Israel. And he put them on the shoulders of the ephod, that they should be stones for a memorial to the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he made the breastplate of cunning work, like the work of the ephod, gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twined linen, It was four square, they made the breastplate double, a span was the length thereof, span the breadth thereof, being doubled. They set it in four rows of stones. The first row was a sardius, a topaz, carbuncle. This was the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, a diamond. And the third row, a leaguer, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in ouches of gold in their enclosings, and the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel, 12, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name according to the 12 tribes. Okay, now, as I mentioned here, this passage is in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is just amazing. It's amazing because, for one thing, it's built over 3,500 years ago, And we're still studying about it. We're still amazed at the tabernacle. And what is amazing about the tabernacle is all the meaning, the meaning of it all, the meaning behind it. Because if you only study the tabernacle for just the construction, how it was made, the materials that went into it, that's not the amazing part. What's amazing about the tabernacle is the meaning behind the tabernacle, behind all the parts of the tabernacle. What's amazing about the tabernacle is not the what of the tabernacle. It's the why of the tabernacle. And the reason that the tabernacle is is so amazing is, is because it's a revelation of who God is. It teaches us who God is. Now, you think about the Apostle Paul, such an amazing person himself, and he starts his life with God, and his first words that he speaks directly to God is a question it's a question of four words. That was on day one of Paul's life with God. That was the day that Paul met God. And the first words out of his mouth, as I mentioned, are these questions of four words. Now, the remainder of his life, what his life is devoted to, is seeking an answer to this simple question that he asked in the, just those four words. If Paul was here, and you could talk to him, and you say, Paul, tell us, what, how would you sum up your life? What is the sum of your life? Paul would answer, my life is focused on answering that one question that I asked God when I met him. And those, that question of four simple words, you see it in Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Acts chapter 9, verse 5, and it's a very simple question. And Paul said these words to God, who art thou, Lord? Who are you? God, who are you? I spent my life in religion. I spent my life in Judaism. I spent my life with Gamaliel. I spent my life thinking I knew about you, but now I know I don't. And so now I just had these words Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord answered him with three words in the same verse, Acts 9 5, Acts 9 5, where the Lord said, Very simply, I am Jesus. Who are you, God? I am Jesus. And then Paul spends the rest of his life on that quest to know who is God, who is Jesus. He spends his next rest of his life on that quest just to answer this question, who is Jesus? And when he comes to the end of his life in Philippians 3.8, he's not finished. When he comes to the end of his life, he says in Philippians 3.8, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, everything in life is like refuse compared to the knowledge, not just the knowledge, but the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which of God. And then he nails it when he says this, Philippians 3.10, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. Who art thou, Lord? He comes to the ends of his life and he says, that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings. And so when you think of Paul's supreme life goal, was it to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, which he did? Was that his supreme life goal, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? no. Was it to write more New Testament books than anyone else, which he did? Was that the supreme life goal? No. His supreme life goal is Philippians 3:10. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. The supreme life goal of Paul was to know the Lord Jesus, to know who Jesus is. And what's amazing about the tabernacle is it answers the question: who is Jesus? That's what the tabernacle does, and that's what it makes it so amazing because it answers the question: who is God? So to get to the real meaning of the tabernacle, you have to study each part, and you've got to be guided as you study the part with one question. What does this tell me about God? Or more specifically, what does this tell me about Jesus? What can we learn? What can we learn about the tabernacle? We can learn, one of the things we learn, really the most that we can learn from the tabernacle is found when God said right off the bat, what the goal or the purpose of the tabernacle was before it was even built. He said in Exodus 25 8, Exodus 25 8, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So that, that's the goal of the tabernacle, it's the purpose. God's intention for the tabernacle was that it should be a place where God could dwell with his people. And this reveals to us, God wants to dwell with his people. Even now, God has a home Where he lives, he lives in his home, and his home, and the name of his home is heaven. What does that mean? Just picture a homeless person a homeless person. He's on the street. He has no place he can call home. He wanders from place to place, from street corner to street corner, from park to park. He's a stranger. His clothes are dirty. He hasn't washed. You encounter him, and when you see him, you wrap your arms around him. You tell him, I want you to come to my home. I want you to come home with me. I want you to live in my home. I want to adopt you as part of my family. I want, I want to spend time with you. I want to give you the best room in my house with your own private bathroom and new clothes and everything you want. And what I want you to do when you're at my house is spend time with me. I want to spend time with you. That's a picture of what God wants to do with man. And that's what the tabernacle speaks back to us. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It's God saying to us, come off the streets, come to my house, be my son, live in my home, and be with me. That's the key message of the tabernacle. It's God saying to man, come to my house. And when God said that in Exodus 25, 8, Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's God saying to man, I want to live among you. And, and eventually, I want you to live with me in my home up in heaven. And there would be no chance at all of man ever going to God's home unless it was first God's idea. There would be no chance. So God wants to dwell with man, and that's the message of why God wanted the tabernacle to be built. As a matter of fact, we kind of shortchange ourselves a little bit when we call it the tabernacle. Because the word in English, tabernacle, means like tent, but that's not the word that's used in Hebrew. The word that's used in Hebrew doesn't mean tabernacle, it doesn't mean tent. The word for what we call the tabernacle is in Hebrew is mishkan. And mishkan means like a dwelling place, it means like home, a home. You can say, you know, I want you to come to my mishkan tonight, come to my home. So whenever you say the word tabernacle or you think of the word tabernacle, don't think of a tabernacle, don't think of a tent. Think of home. Let's go over there and look at the model of home. That's the way we should be thinking, because it represents God's home. And everybody wants to go to God's home. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? And the message of the tabernacle, I'm going to keep saying this wrong word, but that's okay, because that's the only way I can communicate with you. And so, but you keep thinking home every time. Can you do that? Okay, very good. So the message of the tabernacle is that when you want to go to God's home, is when the message is when you first come to it, is God, first of all, says, not so fast, not so fast. There are some requirements for coming to my home. First of all, the first requirement is if you notice on the tabernacle, there's not many doors. There's not many doors into God's home. There's just one door into the tabernacle. There's just one door into God's home. There's just one door. And the Lord Jesus made that very clear when he said in John 10:9, John 10:9 I am the door. I am the door, John 10, 9, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, he shall go in and out and find pasture. So the Lord Jesus didn't say, I am a door. He didn't say that. He said, I am the door, as in the only door to heaven, to God's home. And the Lord Jesus, he took away all doubt about what he meant when he said in John 14, 6, John 14, 6, Jesus saith to him, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father by me. They say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. No, they didn't say this, I'm the only one. I'm there. there is no Allah door. There is no Hindu door. There is no Buddhist door. There is no New Age door into heaven. No, there's just one door and that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message of the fact that there's only one door into the tabernacle, just one door, only one way of access. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man enters God's heaven except by me. That's the meaning of the one door in the tabernacle. So you come to the one door, and you go in, you enter into the tabernacle, and what do you see? The most prominent thing, it's elevated. It's a you can't miss it, it's made out of brass, it's almost blinding when you open the door, and it's this brazen altar, this brass altar, and it's got a brass grate on it. It says in Exodus 35, 16, 35, 16, the altar of burnt offering with his brazen gate. And you're looking at this altar, and the first thing you look around, and you see there's blood everywhere. There's blood all around it. Sometimes there was so much blood, they actually had to make a trench to go out to the river there because the blood was flowing. There's so much blood here. There's so many animals being killed. And blood is obviously important. And actually, some of it was collected and then presented to God. So right away, another requirement you see is that from that altar and that all that blood is it speaks to the fact that man needs a blood sacrifice to come into God's presence. And all those blood sacrifices, which were millions and millions of animals, but They all spoke of the once-for-all blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 10.10. In Hebrews 10.10, when it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here are the words, once-for-all. It's this once-for-all aspect of the offering there. And there was one day, one day of the year which was the most important day for the tabernacle, most important day for the people of Israel, most important day, and that was the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Covering, the Day of Atonement. And this is how the Lord put this once for all. He was sending a message about the once for all, Leviticus 16.34. Leviticus 16.34, when he said, This shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, once a year there was an atonement. The, this is an everlasting statute, the Yom Kippur. And he says in Leviticus sixteen thirty-four, an atonement for all their sins once in a year. In Hebrews ten ten, Hebrews ten ten, offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, I used to wonder about that I, when I was raised in the synagogue and and Yom Kippur was a memorable day um, uh, it's kind of a miserable day if you want to know the truth of the matter is because couldn't eat for 24 hours you couldn't drink water for 24 hours i remember going into the to the to the synagogue there and and the drinking fountains was covered with a plastic bag. That's how I felt. I looked at it and said, yeah, I'm suffocating on this day. And this can't drink any water. And went, what is it? it was very clear. We were told, you know, you hit your chest. You say, shlachli, you know, you, pardon me, pardon me. You think, you're think trying to think of all your sins. And I was thinking, "Oh, my sins? I can't think of all my sins. And they say, this is once a year. And I thought, once a year for all my sins? I need once a second. And I used to think to myself, you know, as a little kid, and I'd sit there and I'd say to myself, Okay, so all my sins are being atoned for here once a year. What happens when I sin the day after today? I got to carry that for a whole year? But it's this aspect of the once for all because it pointed to the fact that the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood offering was once once a year. It was his blood. It was and he says, "I don't want you to ever forget this." He says, "I'm going to make establish something we call it communion." But he said in in Matthew 26, 28, 28, when he takes the wine, the red wine, he said, this is my blood. It's symbolic of his blood. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. And it's his blood that was offered that one time that everything comes to us. As he said, it's it's for the remission of sins, his blood. It's for the redemption of our souls, Ephesians 1, 7. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. It's how we can be brought near to God by the blood. Ephesians 2.13, Ephesians 2.13, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh, made near by the blood of Christ. It's our washing. It's how we're cleansed from our sins, from Revelation 1.5, Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is the blood message. When you come into the tabernacle, you go in the door there, and you see all this blood there. That's the message that comes through. But it's interesting because you say, okay, well, I need that blood sacrifice, so I'm heading right to that altar when you open the door. And when you open the door and you want to go there, there's something in your way. You can't get over there. And it's an object, and it's standing in front of you. And so, as soon as you open the door here and you enter into the door of the tabernacle, there's this object that stands between you and that altar of necessity, that necessary altar of sacrifice. And this object is described in Exodus 40 verse 7. Exodus 40 verse 7, where it says, "And thou shalt set the laver between the tent of congregation and the altar. The tent of congregation is where everybody lived, and you come in through the door, and right away you got this you got this laver right in the middle." And there was a distinctive quality about this laver, this this big bowl, this big sink, this big washing place, big washing pot. But there was a distinctive quality about it. And the distinctive quality was given in Exodus 38.8, Exodus 38.8, where it says, he made the laver of brass and the foot of it, of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle congregation, So just like the altar, the laver is made out of brass, but embedded into the bowl of the laver, into the bowl of the sink for washing, embedded in it are what are called looking glasses of the women. When when the Jewish women left Egypt, they borrowed many things. They borrowed a lot of things. From their neighbors as they were leaving. I don't know when they told me they're gonna give it back, but they says they borrowed it. But anyway, some of the things that they got, because the Egyptians really prided themselves on how well they looked, and oh, you can see it on their, their drawings and their pyramids and stuff like that, were these mirrors from the Egyptians. They were called these looking, looking glasses. It wasn't like kind of like mirrors we have now. These mirrors were made out of a mixture of copper and tin, but they were they were a mirror. They're very effective, very and these these are what the, the, the women gave in the construct of the laver there that was embedded in the bottom of it. So when you came to this laver and you said, okay, it wasn't a case of, okay, time to wash up, let's wash and move on. No, it wasn't that way. Because when you bent over the bowl of the laver with the looking glasses, it forced you to look at yourself. And you look at yourself and say, is that me? Yeah, that's what happened. And that's the whole idea. When well, you bent over to go wash yourself, and that was the time of, is that me? The looking glasses gave a message And the message was, before you go to that altar, you need to take a good look at yourself. Take a deep look at yourself and see who you really are, what you are. See the sin that is driving you, or should be driving you, to the altar. See that. Just along the same lines as 1 Corinthians 11.28. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. There's one book in the Bible that has the statement right off the bat in the first chapter twice, and and it's kind of remarkable. It's the book of Haggai, and the same statement is made in Haggai 1.5 and Haggai 1.7, Haggai 1.7, which is, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, consider your ways. That's what these looking glasses did. They caused you to, before before you get to that altar, not so fast, before you go to that altar, Go down there, watch, but look at, take a good hard look at yourself. Why? Because that altar is only for sinners. That's all. It's not for righteous people. It's almost like God putting this sign before the altar. It says, righteous people need not come. Because unless a person sees himself as a sinner, and not just a garden variety sinner, but the dirty rotten type, unless a person saw himself as a dirty rotten sinner, then the altar of sacrifice is not for them. And the Lord Jesus made this clear when he said in Mark 2:17, Mark 2:17, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have they that are whole have no need of the physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you can almost almost picture that altar calling out, sinners, sinners, come. Righteous, forget about it. Don't come. So the Lord made it very clear that he didn't come and he wasn't calling the person who said about himself, I'm a pretty good person, not bad, Yeah, I'm not as bad as some, not as good as others, but you know, I'm quite happy with the way I've turned out in my life, like the Pharisee in Luke 18.11, Luke 18.11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee, I'm not as other men are, I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterous, or even as this publican. And the Lord made it very clear that he came for, he's calling the person who said about himself, Lord, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Like the person in Luke 18, 13, Luke 18, 13, the publican standing afar off would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if a person didn't see himself that way as a dirty, rotten sinner, then it was time for that person just to spend a little time there at the labor first. Look at himself in those looking glasses. Compare himself with the law of God because that was the message of the, the looking glasses and labor. Once a person saw himself, oh, I am unworthy. I am a dirty, rotten sinner. I am bad. Unless he saw that, unless he said, you know, I need to wash here because it's time for me to determine to stop with the sin, to repent. That's what repentance is. It's a determination to stop. And so after a person went through that process of self-examination, after he recognized that he was in need, a needy person, then, then God says, okay, now you're ready for the altar. And then you go to the altar, you make the sacrifice, and you enter into the next, the next chamber there. It's called the holy place. So you open up this door, and you look around and say, this place is amazing. And you look, and you see a little table, and there's some loaves of bread on the table and you look a little bit farther, and you see an altar, a little altar, and there's some rising up, some smoke, some smell. It's an altar of incense. It's, it's symbolic of prayer. You look around, you say, well, the, the, there's light in here because of this candelabra that's there. There's seven candles burning. And then as you keep on looking around, you see a person, one person. He's standing there. He's the high priest. He's elaborately dressed. He's representing another person. The only person ever called the great high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051.
0: What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on youtube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org.